In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I imagine more than a few of you know the name uh, Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was a a great football coach in the 60s, uh, probably the highest percentage in terms of winning percentages, five championships. And um, <clears throat> he coached for the Green Bay Packers. And it was reported that he would always start out the season with reminding his team, saying, this is a football. Now, he's speaking to professional football players, um, reminding them this is a football. <clears throat> his point was that you never want to leave the fundamentals of anything. You, you want to make sure and understand. You never want to lose track uh, of, of the main thing. You want to keep your eye on the ball. And even if you're not a sports enthusiast, I think you can understand the, the essential need to not forget what makes something uh, important. You know, over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the nature of the church. What is the church? Why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing the right thing? And how do we know that? And we're going to look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually the, the beginning of the church from the point of Jesus' ascension. It's really quite remarkable when you think about the church, because the church spread like fire east to, is, uh, to Asia, north and west to Europe. But what caused the church to grow so rapidly? Rodney Stark is a, a great Christian historian, and, and he says, here's the question that scholars are always plagued over. And he words it this way. He says, how did a tiny and obscure Messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? He says, this is the only question. In other words, how did it happen? And what would have caused the church to be so incredibly powerful to dislodge the paganism over all of that area and replace it with Christian faith? Well, hopefully we're going to answer this in the next few weeks, at least some of the answers. And we're going to find that first it was really incredible witnesses. These apostles and followers of Christ had a power that was radically unique. It was by the Spirit that brought the mission to the nations. Um, they suffered well. They were men and women who prayed diligently. Uh, they gathered together in churches, little displays of God. 
They preached a message of redemption and hope to the nations. So I, I don't know what your experience of church has been for all of you. Uh, some of you maybe have been to churches that have been misguided or troubling for you, but hopefully over the next six weeks we can, we can put some posts in the ground that will give you a better understanding of what the church is to be, and then we can look at ourselves and find out if we're in fact doing it. So the way the passage breaks down that Rachel read, it's really three parts of it. In the first five verses, those are called the prologue. He's just kind of introducing this book, uh, but he's reminding us of the message of the church, uh, that the church has a message that has to be given. And then in six to eight, he really talks about the mission of the church. What are we supposed to do? What does Christ call his followers to do? And then the last, nine to 11, it really speaks about the confidence you know, he tells us to go into all the world. It takes a little bit of courage. And so he encourages us in 9 to 11. So the first, the prologue, first five verses, the message of the church. Uh, notice we find immediately that Luke is identified as the author of this letter. Now, he doesn't say that, but you notice in the first verse when he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus just means lover of God or dear to God. In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's referencing uh, the Gospel of Luke, because in the first chapter of Luke, you'll see the same name, Theophilus, and you'll see um, that he has tried to make an orderly account. They were trying to explain who this Jesus is, this phenomena. And so Theophilus was probably some patron who financed the writing of this letter. But what Luke is doing here is Luke is identifying himself as the author. And he's showing us that this book of Acts, it's a continuation of what the gospel is. It's two parts of one. And you see it because he says Jesus began to do and teach. <clears throat> In other words, Jesus hasn't finished. Uh, that's the whole point of when you go through this. Uh, he presented himself, look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is trying to show us He's trying to show us that, that the work of Jesus is continuing now through the apostles because Jesus is alive. Uh, Jesus wasn't a messianic movement where he died and it stopped. He continues to live, and he's proving it. Luke, among all the gospel writers, speaks about all these post-resurrection experiences, 10 of them, 10 of them where Jesus appeared to them, proving to him after he suffered, I'm alive. The movement's going on. Uh, the message of the kingdom that he kept talking with him, that's going on. The message of the kingdom, nothing will roll it back. It's going forward, and now you're going to be the ones carrying it. This message of the kingdom, it, it isn't just how to get to heaven. Uh, what we have here is God bringing about a restoration of all that was lost. So go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the man and the woman. He puts them in his temple or his kingdom. And they rebel against him. They want their own kingship. And so he exiles them out of his presence. And what do we have? We have nothing but tragedy, just a litany of disasters. As you walk through the pages of the Old Testament, you find that men and women don't do well on their own. But God had not finished with us. And it's in sending Jesus Christ, his son, that he's going to reclaim this kingdom. And that's why... The first thing that Jesus testified to is he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus knew, I'm coming to reclaim the kingdom for my father. He demonstrated his power with miracles. 
but he gave the preaching of the gospel that in Christ, in himself, he would reconcile men and all things to God. This is the kingdom that he spoke to them about over those 40 days. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, to sit and have him appear before you, alive, after dead, and explain to you that this kingdom that I have started, started, it's the dawn of a new creation is what it is. It's a recreation. It's a new kingdom with new power, new glory, that the Father is going to bring all things back to himself. So this is in the first five verses. Luke is just saying, hey, this is the message and, and, the, and the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to bring, and we've seen him. It's still going on. It has not finished. Now, for you, if you're a Christian here, you want to make sure to understand the message. There's a lot of challenges to understanding this message. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of people want to take the message of the kingdom and kind of individualize it. It's just about me and Jesus. You know, I believe in this creed, and I believe in Jesus, and I'm good to go. I don't need the church, I don't need fellowship, I don't need other people. And, and we tend to make it just about Jesus and me. That's not the reality of what's going on here. Uh, when Jesus came to establish a kingdom, he came to take individual sinners and bring them in, into a community of saints, of, of saints that are being reformed. We want to think broader than just Jesus and me. The, the church is a visible expression of the kingdom to the world. We are the ones that are to reflect God back to the world. But some of us don't just individualize it, we also trivialize it. Uh, we, we make this kingdom just about, I'm not going to hell. And you can breathe a sigh of relief if you get cancer. It's so much more than that. When he comes to bring a kingdom, this is a cosmic redemption. The, the earth is groaning for redemption. So when Jesus has come to redeem, he's redeeming all that God has made and bringing back to himself. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. When you die, you don't just go off into some cloudy space. God is moving towards a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell with one another and with him in this kingdom forever. Enjoying God. Can you imagine the fullness at his right hand that Levi prayed about? That will be ours with God. That's the, that's the kingdom. It's not just about avoiding hell, but it's about something far grander and far more cosmic. Others of us tend to demythologize this gospel. In other words, we look at the gospel... And we, we think, okay, I believe in Jesus, but we forget that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God. We celebrate Easter, and we get excited about it. We dress differently. We're excited. There's kind of a buzz in the air. It's kind of sweet. But he's reigning right now. His resurrection power is existing right now. The issues you're going through, the struggles that you have, the trials that you experience, he knows them full well, and he is able right now to bring about aid and comfort and strength for you. So, so, so right now, these things are happening. God sits in the heavens, and he does as he pleases right now. So, so we don't want to truncate this message. We don't want to individualize it or trivialize it or kind of make it less powerful than it is. Right now, you worship a God who reigns. And, and this, by the way, if you're, if you're not a Christian here, this is why we worship Christ the way we do. I mean, a lot of people want to say, well, Jesus Christ came to give an example of what it means to love. Well, he did do that, but if he died and rose again, then he's altogether unique. 
I mean, to the argument that people say, well, all religions are generally the same. They're just different roads. They all kind of work their way up the mountain, different ways, different times, but they all, they all arrive at the top in the, same, in the same way. Not so. It can't be so. Jesus is saying he is the only one from God who has come to bring a kingdom, and he's come to save people through himself, reconciling them to God. There is no other counterpart to him. He is unique. This is the defining difference between all the religions in the world and Christianity. It's not just salvation by grace, but salvation through one man who has died and has been raised again and now seated at the right hand of God. And that's why we worship him as we do. So that's in the first five verses, a reminder of the kingdom that he's come to preach that has been confirmed by the resurrection. That would be an easy message to preach, but it's made solid by one who has come out of a grave. Okay, so what happens next? Well, we get to verse 6, and you see, after the message of the church, we see what the, mean, or what the mission of the church is. What's the mission? Of the, what are we supposed to be doing? Look with me at verse 6, because um, it kind of alludes to it, and we'll get to it clearly in verse 8. And in fact, let's just go to verse 8. He says, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm going to deal with the Holy Spirit next week. It's such a huge topic uh, that, that our being witnesses is by the power of the Spirit. But, but I'm going to reserve that for next week. Let's just look at witnesses today. The, the mission of the church is that you and I are to be witnesses. Now, look what happens in verse 6. The apostles come together and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, notice what they're asking in that question. They want to know what's happening next. They want to know when's it going to happen. When's the end going to come? And notice what Jesus does. He kind of rebukes them. He kind of says to them, hey, it's not for you to know that. I'm not asking you to speculate about when it's all going to happen. I'm not asking you to theorize over what's going to have to happen before Jesus Christ returns. In other words, he's implying that there's an interval of time that's going to take place. And, and what you as the church are to do in that interval is in verse 8, to be a witness by the power of the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be a witness? So I'm saying that you are called to be a witness. Well, a witness, as you can imagine, with all the different law shows on and courtroom scenes, a witness is a person, man or woman, brought to a court, in a legal sense at least, and he's giving a testimony. He's speaking to the truth as he has observed it. And he's doing it in front, of a, uh, in front of a jury so as to determine the guilt or innocence of a person. That's what a witness does. He just testifies to the truth as he understands it, as he observes it. And that's what they're called to do. They're, they were called to give a testimony. They had seen and heard all that Jesus had done. And they're just to testify to it. They're to speak about it. But notice what he says. He says, you're to be my witnesses. That's the issue. We're to be witnesses to Christ. The witnesses to what he did, that he came to offer himself as a way of being reconciled to God. He, he's come to lay his life down and to take upon himself our sins that by faith he might lead us to the Father. That's what we're to testify to. That's always been the testimony. The testimony is what did he say and what did he do and you're to tell that to people. Now, you notice in the rest of verse 8, he tells us where that's to take place. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I mean, it's this ever-expanding area of witness. 
Now, you know, the disciples kind of revealed, I think, a few of their cards when they said, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still saw themselves that Israel was to be the ethnic, kind of the epicenter of God's plan. I don't think that's the case in the New Testament, especially next week. With the coming of the Spirit and the gospel, God is collecting people around, not in ethnicity such as Israel, but they're collecting, uh, God is collecting a people around the gospel by the power of the Spirit. So it's no longer going to be marked by circumcision of the flesh, but a change of the heart. A new heart will be given. And that message is going to go out to the world. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Samaria, to the ends of the world. And that's exactly what happened. So if you go home today and you read the book of Acts, which will take you about two hours, sitting down start to finish, that's exactly what happens. Read the first seven verses. The church is exploding in Jerusalem. In chapter, uh, sorry, the first seven chapters, the church is exploding in Jerusalem. Go to chapter 8. Philip, through the persecution, by the way, persecution brings glory to God, the church goes out to Samaria. And then the uh, conversion of Paul in chapter 9. And then it goes out into the Mediterranean basin. It goes all the way to Rome and then even to Spain. In fact, some scholars feel that the church may have, in the first generation, made it to India. There's a, a very ancient church there called St. Thomas. They think God, that Thomas, the apostle, was the first one to take it to India. So here you have, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And within one generation, it reached from Spain to perhaps India. It's incredible. So what he said actually happened. But how? I mean, these guys were ill-equipped. I mean, they were untrained. They were unlearned. How could they do it? I think two things stand out with these men. First off, they were convinced. I mean, they were convinced that Jesus had come in the flesh. He had come from the Father. That he had come to bear our sins. It, that he had come to die, that he did die on a cross. They saw that, and they saw him because of those many proofs afterwards. They knew that he was alive, and that they saw him ascend into heaven, as we see in verse 9 and 10 and 11. They know he's at the right hand of God. They were convinced of these things. Their minds were steeped in the reality of, yes, he has come, he has died, he has reconciled us to God. We have now a kingdom that will never falter. But they were more than convinced Many of you are convinced of that. They were captivated by him. I think they really loved him. I, mean, I, I think they were overwhelmed that, uh, that Jesus, who was worthy of worship, laid his life down to save us. That God, holy and just to punish us, was merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, furnishes a son while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. It's the greatest love story ever told. It's the greatest act of kindness, I would think, for someone like God who would be wise and right to just destroy people who were opposed to him, would instead reach out and sacrifice his own son to save us. I think they were captivated. They were loved with a love they had never experienced before. So I think they were both convinced they were captivated, and so they were compelled to go. This is a message that can't be, it's too important of a message. The redemption of the world through Christ given by God, have to share it, and so they did. Well, are you convinced? I mean, as you're sitting, listening to this kind of historic review of Acts, are you convinced that Jesus Christ 
has come as the Son of God? Are you convinced that he's the Messiah of God? Are you convinced that he died? Are you convinced that he rose again? Are you convinced that he is at the right hand of God? Are you convinced that he is enough to save you? Are you convinced that even though you, although you try very hard to be a good person, you cannot please God? Are you convinced that he can and he has? And if you are convinced, are you captivated by that? Does it move you? Does your heart move? Does it fill at all with greater affections for one who would do this? Have you been loved by someone better or deeper? Have you been loved by anyone more consistently or more passionately? Because if you're captivated, if you're convinced, and you are captivated by this, this is what makes us witnesses. This is what makes us followers. This is what makes us Christian. We see him alone as our Savior, and we love him. We are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is why now we, we witness this is why we testify. This is why we speak to the thing. And we use our words. Have to use our words. Witnessing is with words. Listen, the church may do a lot of good things in this world, but primary to the church is the testimony that Christ has come to save. You know, as you go through the book of Acts, that's what you find. Chapter 2, Peter preaches, 3,000 believe. In chapter 3, he heals the beggar. But it's a platform in order to tell the people who healed him the power of Christ. Chapter 4, he preaches, and 5,000 believe. Chapter 5, he's in prison. The angel releases him, and what's the angel say? Go and testify to Christ, who's done this for you. That's what we're called to do. You don't see in the book of Acts, you know, social projects. We're going to look to serve the community. There's no creational care going on. There's no sort of, hey, we've got to get in the cultural world, war, and we've got to kind of bring Rome back to a Christian viewpoint. There was none of that going on. Now, those things are great. And I want to advance to you that they should be borne out by Christians, individual Christians. Like I think of Refugee Hope Partners, they're ministering, and Michelle leading that. That's a great ministry. And we're behind that, by the way. But, but, it, but it's by the saints doing that work. The church's primary function is to preach boldly this gospel, to testify to what Christ has done. Leslie Newbegin was a British uh, missiologist back in the previous century, and he wrote these words. He says, the church is the bearer of all nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom, the reign, the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> it calls men and women to repent of their false loyalty to other powers, to become believers in the one true sovereignty, and so to become corporately a sign, an instrument, a foretaste of that sovereignty of the one true and living God over all nature, all nations, and all human lives. It's not meant to call people out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. That's the call of what being a witness is, is to testify to this gospel. That's what you're called to do, a witness of words. But it's also a witness of joy. You are to be captivated. I mean, we are to be satisfied in him. And out of the overflow of our joy that that's what gives birth to a desire to share this. Hey, listen, you're great at this. I mean, some of you have Facebook pages. You're very quick to post things that you're excited about. I mean, you do. I mean, what do you talk about most? You know, the things you value most, the things you find most important, and maybe your kids, 
It may be health, it may be food, it may be exercise, it may be political persuasion. Whatever you post on your Facebook, that's something you're kind of you're testifying to. I love this stuff, or I love these children, or this is what they've done. Well, it's out of the overflow of your joy. It, when you begin to grasp what he has done for you, then it normally, or it should, begin to come out of you. Now, this is where the struggle is, isn't it? A, a lot of us right now, you're listening to me, and you're feeling a bit of conviction, perhaps, or a little bit, yeah. The witnessing thing is really hard for me. To testify is really hard for me. And there are many excuses that I've heard over the years. I did some research and found a few others. Let me give you some of them and see if, uh, if it fits at all. Some of you may say, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I know I'm supposed to do it, but, but I'm really not up for the task. I really don't, you know, we've got to bring in the A-team for this, the trained people. I'm, not, I'm really not up for it. Well, remember now, and we're going to see this more in detail next week, but it is by the Spirit of God that we witness to the testimony and to the work of Christ. I'll take Peter, for example. Peter, Peter was a zero, and he became a hero, right? I mean, he was a zero and betraying Christ three, various, three different times, but then he preaches in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and, and thousands come to faith. He was a zero when he turned his back on Christ. But then the Spirit of God comes in chapter 2, and now he's a hero. I mean, you have the Spirit of God. Peter doesn't have more than you. He doesn't have a different spirit. But being filled with the Spirit of God enables us to witness for his glory. Some of you want to say, you know what, I have some really key relationships with people, and I don't want to harm them. And if I come and I bring this testimony of Christ and the gospel, it's going to injure our relationship. Well, let me just ask you this. What kind of relationship is it? I, I mean, if, if that which is most near and dear to you, you cannot talk about, then doesn't it reveal somewhat of a shallower relationship, perhaps, than you think? Shouldn't that relationship be able to bear this love that you have? If they do love you and care for you, wouldn't they want to know? Others of you may say, you know what, it's just awkward. I feel uncomfortable. I don't like it. It just makes you feel, and, and one guy did say that. He said evangelism is like a conversation between two nervous people. It, it just, it's just uncomfortable. But, but let me ask you this. Isn't it worthwhile to be a, a little awkward? I, I, I mean, really, nobody's throwing stones at you. Nobody's burning you at the stake. I, I, I mean, a little bit of awkwardness, it is there. There's no doubt about it. But isn't he worth it? If it's true, if it's not true, it's not. Uh, but if it is true, isn't it, isn't it worth it? Others want to say, they want to say that I, I witness by my life that the way I live is my witness. Well, that's good. I do want to encourage a life that is consistent with the testimony of Christ. But lives need to be interpreted. So you go watch a movie, and you're following a great, and then you turn the sound down. How well are you going to understand the movie? You're going to interpret. You're going to figure out what they're doing. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know why they're doing this. You don't know what they're doing and how they're doing You need words. The kingdom of God is a message, and it comes in words. So we have to use words. We have to speak to the nature of all that Christ is and has done. Another excuse is I don't really have any Christian friends. Well, then pop the bubble and get out of it. You know, make some Christian friends. It's what you got to do. I, I, I tried to introduce myself at the gym. I, I did. I, I'm, I saw this guy. He'd been there a bunch of times. We seemed to click 
or seemed to be at the gym at the same time. So I just went up and introduced myself, and and uh, he turned out to be a guy that went to school where I went to school. And uh, after a few conversations, he's beginning to tell me that his wife has cancer at stage four. I'm able to say, well, let me come over and pray with you. He said, no, I don't. I said, well, can I send you some stuff? He said, yeah, you can. And so I did. And it, it's just a it's a slow evolving conversation. Just just make a friend. I, I used to. Yeah, I, I used to try to pray that I would meet friends. Go to the same place to get your hair cut. You know, when you go to the when you go to the store, go to the same cashier if they're there when you're there. Just make friends. We have to be able to do that. But but at the end of the day, you know what? There's a lot of excuses I could bring up that I haven't. Uh, here's, the, here's the bottom line, I think. That to be a witness, it's more. Uh, it's more than having the right doctrine. It's really having a devotion, a devotion to Christ. It, it's really having a love for him and what he's done for you. And, and, and then it will come. And, and I would encourage you, if your love for Christ is waning, ask for grace to understand your sin to understand the work he's done for you. Ask him to give you a greater love. Because when you love him and all that he's done for you, then it will become easier. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, this great British preacher of the 19th century said, he said, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak. Your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you are like one who has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go and tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus and that you are anxious that they should find him too. This is the call to be a witness. Now, I know that there are some that say, you know what, Christians, you're narrow-minded, you're judgmental, you know, you don't have to proselytize everybody. Evangelism is kind of this, it's kind of intellectual arm wrestling, you're trying to wrestle. That's not it. If the message is true, for you to be silent, it is the height of indifference. If it's true, there can be nothing more compassionate that you do than to declare that God has been kind to his world and he's offered to us a Savior through whom we can be reconciled. It's a sweet message. It isn't trying to arm wrestle them into believing that Jesus died for sins. If they understand their sin, they're going to long for a Savior. Okay, so you see the message is this kingdom has come, the mission of the church, the message of the church is the kingdom, the mission of the church is to be a witness. That's what you are, that's what I am. But notice the confidence in the church, because at this point in the story, you're looking at this story, and you're looking at verse 8, and what's he say? He says, listen, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what happens in verse 9? It's really kind of funny. He says, I'm out of here. He said, see ya. I'm going. I'm gone. See ya later. All of a sudden, they're all alone. Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? Hold the phone. What are you doing leaving now? We need you to go to the ends of the earth. 
Well, look what he gives them, because he gives them a promise of where he will be and what he will do. And this, through the Spirit, brought them to take the message to the end of the world. Look in verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up into a cloud, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, this is really significant. Uh, this is where Jesus is. This is the place of Jesus, right? He's lifted up. And, and why was he lifted up in his sight? Why didn't he just evaporate or, and turn invisible? Well, I think he was showing them that while the past 40 days I have been appearing with you periodically, I will not anymore in that same way. I am going to heaven. And that's the point of the cloud. What's it with the cloud? You know, what's with the cloud thing? Well, remember, the clouds throughout the Old Testament and the Bible are very significant. God appears in a cloud. Moses enters a cloud to get the law. Uh, the Shekinah glory in the form of a cloud goes over the temple in Ezekiel. Jesus in his transfiguration. What comes down? A cloud. A cloud is a picture of the presence of God. So when they saw him go into the cloud, that was saying he was going to the right hand of God. At least that's the way Peter interpreted it in chapter 5 when he says these words. He says, And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. So Peter interpreted Jesus going into the cloud. He's at the right hand of God right now. Now that's good news if you're going to take a message to the end of the world. Because if he's at the right hand of God, he's above rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church to advance the message to the world. But he gave them a promise. And that you see in, in verse 11 when these two men are kind of standing in robes, and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the heaven? Can you imagine the scene? Two guys in robes, and everybody, it's like a work crew on the side of the road. You know, they're all just kind of looking up. They're wondering, where's he going? And, and, and these angels are actually rebuking them. What are you doing looking at the sky? Of course he's going to come back. He's going to the right hand of God. He's not going to leave the kingdom. Then he, He's going to be ministering to you from the right hand of God, and he'll come back in the same way that he went. He'll come back visible. He won't come back in secret. He'll come back visible, powerful, for all eyes to see. And until that time comes, stop looking at the sky and start with the task. Be about, because the promise of his return is the assurance to us that the work that we've begun, whether here local or global, all the way in Asia, that work will continue. That work will be finished. That work will all be consummated because he's going to come back and make it so. So here you have the message of the church is the kingdom of God. The mission of the church is to be witnesses. The confidence of the church is given both with Christ being at the right hand of God now, but with the assurance that he's going to come back and wrap it all up just as God has called for it to be. So what do we do? How can we move from being a silent witness to being more of a faithful witness? So let me give you five takeaways that maybe you can, you can cogitate on, think about. Number one, I, I hope from hearing this, it changes your view of the church. I, I want to change your view of the church. You know, the church for 300 years didn't have any buildings. There was never a, the church wasn't associated with a building. It came later. You know, the word Kirche in German means church. It came later to be seen as a building. The church in the original language is called out ones. There were no buildings. We were a new people. We were called out of darkness, and we were called together to be a people of light, a people of Christ. 
So, so now we've, we, I like buildings. I'm not an anti-building guy. But the building has come, where do you go to church? You know, we think of a building with a street address. That's not the case. We do gather here because it's easier, and we like air conditioning in Raleigh in July. But this is just an equipping center. It's an equipping center to send you back out. That's what Acts 4 speaks about. That, that Christ, when he ascended, he gave gifts to his church. Some of those gifts are pastors and teachers and leaders, and they're training you and equipping you to do the work of ministry. You're the witnesses. You're being educated now in the things of God so you can go out and do what he has called you to do. It may be working with refugees. It may be engaging your neighbor or perhaps even your spouse with the gospel. But you're the witnesses. We want to think of the church not as a building, but we're collected together as a people. That's even why the benediction is given. At least those over 45 like benediction. Benediction is just a word meaning blessing. You hear a final word as you go out of the building. It's a word of God for you to go back into the world with and to walk in light of. That's what the benediction or that ending when the staff gets up and gives a, a word from Scripture at the end. Remember, you belong to a city whose foundations have been built by God. That's what we're building. That's what we're building. So change your view of the church. Try not to think it is a building, but we are together in movement. Secondly, I would say this. Repent of your, your complacency, perhaps, with people, or perhaps your callousness. If nobody around you knows that you're a Christian, if you've never engaged, perhaps it's a point for you to consider repenting. You know, many of us are actually in more fear of what people may think about us then we fear God, and that is an insult to God. That's an insult to him, that we would be more in fear of what people think about us. And Jesus himself said, don't fear what man can do. He can kill the body. Fear what God can do. He can kill the body and the soul. I mean, I think it's right to have legitimate fears. He would be the one, I would say, would be the most legitimate to fear. But I don't even want you fearing. I, I want you looking at your complacency or perhaps callousness and be encouraged. The church that we're part of, the biggest religion in the world, was started with 12 nobodies. That's, that's the way it is. It was started with 12 nobodies, and it's gone over the globe because of God's spirit, and God wants his name glorified. And we now are the witnesses to do it. So let's perhaps repent of that. And then thirdly, I would say pray. Pray for people around you. I pray for the neighbors right around me. I repent when I maybe don't speak to it as boldly as I should, but I pray for them. Pray for people in your locale, maybe in your family, maybe in your workplace, it may be in your community, but ask God to open opportunities for you. When I was a CPA, I used to have a coffee mug with scripture verses around it, and whenever a client would come in, uh, you know, kind of silent advertising, if you will, and, and when a client would come in, I would just pray, God, give me an opportunity. You know, let me have an opportunity to speak to the things of God. Help me to get the conversation to a transcendent end or a meaning of life or the brevity of life or even something simple as, I'm going to pray for you. I, I've had more people say, would you really? Of course I'll pray for you. I mean, even that begins to open the door. Uh, pray about the opportunities. That's what Paul did. I mean, who wouldn't want Paul on an evangelistic campaign? If you're going door to door, I want Paul with me. Paul's got all the answers, right? Paul's a great guy to have with you. What does Paul do? In Colossians chapter 4, he says, would you pray for me that I could preach clearly as I ought? He prays. He says, would you ask that God would open a door of opportunity, 
that I might declare the mystery of Christ? That's all I'm asking us to do is pray that God would open opportunity that you could declare the mystery of Christ. Mysteries are sometimes hard to believe for people, but we still declare it. And he opens the eyes of the blind that they can see and believe. But we are the witnesses testifying to it. So let's pray. And that I would also say, would you work to develop a greater love for the nations? I mean, would you maybe even within two years consider going on a mission trip? Would you talk to Nick and the mission team and just say, how can I be involved? It may be local, may be global, but, but how can I be more involved? And if you can't go for whatever legitimate reason you have, then could you at least pray for our missionaries? Could you pray for the ministries that we have? Uh, could you get to know the country and the peoples that they're working with? And you can begin praying for them? Can you begin to, to take what is most important to Stephen Christie, Danny and Lauren, Ahmad, Haiti? What's most important to them? And, and maybe appeal to God for them on that. And, and it develops a love for the nations because God has a love for the nations. And we ought to as well. And then the last thing I would ask you to do is just remember that you're not in heaven. You're not in heaven right now, if you need to be told that. When you will be in heaven, this call will evaporate. You will not be asked to go to the nations, to the lost, to testify. There will be no lost people in heaven. This is not something for you to do in heaven. But you're not in heaven, and so you and I have a task to do. And the reality of it is that, and I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon, but the book of Acts has no ending. You know, all of Paul's letters have endings. He's greeting people, he's thanking people, and all that sort of stuff. There's no ending to Acts. Why? Because there's no finishing of it until Jesus Christ returns. And listen to what he says. Jesus, in Matthew 24, says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Well, the end hasn't come, so the task is still at hand. We're still called to be witnesses. So the message of the church is that God has brought about a kingdom and a son, a dawn, a new day has dawned 2,000 years ago. And we, the church here, this far away from the Middle East, are evidence of it. Uh, the mission of the church is to be witnesses. That is our call, to testify. You don't have to be the brightest bulb in the pack. You're testifying to what Jesus said and did and how he has affected your life. And then the confidence we have is not in your eloquence. It's not in your theological rigor. The confidence you have is that the Spirit of God is going to move in you because Christ now is at the right hand of God with a promise to return. So let's take a few moments now and perhaps uh, confess our complacency or callousness or perhaps ask for a greater love for God. I need a greater love for God. I pray for a greater compassion for people. Ask him. He says, you have not because you ask not. So let's ask him. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.